Storymakers. I am Angie Powers. And I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Story Show. <laughs> we always do that. We are thrilled to be here with Maya, Myra Strober. Myra Strober is a labor economist. She is a professor emerita at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University and professor of economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business by courtesy. And I have to say, I kept flipping back to that as I was reading the book and waiting to find out how that was all going to turn out. Um, she is the co-author of The Road Winds Uphill All the Way, Gender, Work, and Family in the United States and Japan. Um, she is actually the co-author or author of six books. And the most recent one, which we'll be discussing today, is Sharing the Work, What My Family and Career Taught Me About Breaking Through and Holding the Door Open for Others. Um, I also want to mention that Myra Strober was the founding director of Stanford's Center for Research on Women, which is now the Clayman Institute for Research on Women and Gender, and president of the International Association for Feminist Economics. She's been an expert in, witness in legal cases involving sex discrimination, sexual harassment, and the valuation of unpaid caring work, and she's consulted with several corporations on improved utilization of women in management and work-family issues. So incredibly impressive and you can learn more about that by reading the, the wonderful book that we are discussing today and uh, we also wanted to well do you want to mention that well we really try to focus on craft but as Elizabeth and I were having lunch today we realized that you know occasionally certain kinds of content grab us more than others so we may be veering into content we will try to veer back to craft if we do that but um and it might be relevant as it is women relevant. writers, the economy of women writers. We'll get maybe get into that. But um, it also makes me want to start a whole another podcast to interview people like you about gender. <laughs> anyway, welcome, Myra. Thank you so much. So we start with what we're working on. And Angie, why don't you let us know what you're working on right now? Well, right now I am working on getting auditions in place. So trying to get actors for a film I'll be shooting in September. And that's not writing, but it feels like writing. Well, it's an interesting way of imagining your characters into yes. being through yes. real people. Well, this morning I snuck down to my cafe. It's, it's my work day, so I don't always get to do this. And I was editing my book, and it was one of those moments that was completely thrilling. You know, you don't this writing, as we all know, is not always completely thrilling, but um, this... It's just really fun, the editing part and making it all come together. So that's what I'm working on. Myra, um, what are you working on right now? Well, I've been running around hither and yon giving book talks, so that's what I've been working on. Yeah. yeah. Also radio interviews. <laughs> so, um, I'm actually looking forward to getting back to writing, uh, which I'm going to do, uh, Elizabeth, at your uh, writer's retreat in just a couple of weeks. Yes. And, uh, and I, I really enjoy all of the contact with my readers, but I also enjoy sitting by myself yes. and writing. Yes. And so I'm looking forward to coming to that. Oh, and so I had so much fun writing this memoir. Um, it was my first foray out of academic writing, and now um, I want to write a novel. Yeah. <laughs> By the time I finished my memoir, I thought, well, if I could actually make stuff up, that would be even better. <laughs> ah. Well, that was actually one of the questions I had, you know, being aware of, it's a very different set of criteria for academic writing than it is for 
uh, creative nonfiction or memoir. And so I was just sort of curious, what were things that you ran into as uh, challenges crossing that divide? And what kinds of things did you find yourself bringing with you from the academic world? Well, before I actually started writing a memoir, I spent five years, uh, obviously not full time, but taking classes in uh, short story writing so that I could stop writing like an academic and uh, start writing dialogue and be concerned about uh, the arc of the story and uh, learn what uh, fiction looks like and how one wrote fiction. And then after five years, I retired, and so I was no longer working. And then I started working on the memoir uh, full-time. And I took Ellen Sussman's class called uh, Novel Slash Memoir in a Year, and that was just a marvelous experience. Um, Ellen's thought was that in her, in her language, um, after one year, you hand in um, your first shitty draft. And... Um, you don't censor yourself much, and so that draft was probably two and a half times longer right, than right. I ultimately published. But that was a fabulous experience. What was? What did you end up cutting out? Because I think shaping is the hardest thing about memoir. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I knew from the beginning that this wasn't going to be my whole life story, but I had too many themes, and Ellen points out that. Uh, you don't really know what your themes are until you finish your first draft. And so when I went through that draft and uh, read Ellen's comments on it, I realized that I had too many themes and that I had to pick and choose. And so uh, what I cut out was everything not related to the three themes or four themes, I guess, that I ultimately decided I could keep in the memoir. Will, will, and, will you articulate what those are? Yes. Um, the first one was the main theme, which is how to have both work and family. And that was a personal theme, and that was also the subject of my work. So I tried to weave in my personal experiences with what I was studying over the years about work and family and about women and work. And the second theme was um, a spiritual theme. That is, how could I be a feminist and also uh, continue to be uh, a practitioner of Judaism? And uh, Judaism, as most religions are, uh, is very patriarchal. And so over time, I had to make peace with um, spirituality and um, feminism. And so that's the second theme. A third theme really is friendship, um, how friendship with other women has affected my life and really helped me to um, survive and flourish. Um, and the fourth theme maybe is a shorter theme, but it's about forgiveness, how to get on with your life, let the past go, and um, realize that all of the experiences you had that were not so enjoyable, uh, nonetheless played a role in your growth and your life, and to just forgive the people who created those experiences or co-created them with you, and um, move on, enjoy. 
Did you change the names of people at all in this? Um, I left out some people's names. Yeah. Um, when I was finished, I called some people and asked them if they would mind being identified by name. And when they said they didn't want to, it was very easy for me to just take their names out. And then when some of them said they didn't want to, I realized I could easily take out some other names without. Right. Um, one man who had been very important in my life for uh, five years said that he did not want his name to be used and that he wanted uh, me to call him Ted. Uh, so he already created his own fictitious name. <laughs> so I had no problem using Ted. That's fantastic. Um, other people, um, I, I, I could not not identify because they were so important in my life, like my ex-husband. Right. And I gave him the, uh, manuscript to read and I told him that I would welcome any comments he had and he never made any comments. So I took that to mean, go ahead. Yeah. Do, do you know that he read it? I don't know. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just think of that opening scene when you were uh, so, I mean, it's just so outrageous to conceive of it at this point in uh, our world, but it, you know, it does happen, but you know, oh, you can't make tenure because you live in Palo Alto and starting with that scene. And so I was sort of curious about, you know, all the, the academics who are kind of perpetuating this role of, a, you know, in the book and, just if they were being identified, because oh. I mean, it's like, oh, you're the dude who said you can't do this uh, to somebody. I mean, <laughs> well, that particular man has passed away. Okay, um, but you know, he and I made peace long ago. Mm. So I think, and, and I explain in the book how yeah. eventually I did get an offer from him. Um, I did uh, tell another administrator that he was featured in my book and uh, he didn't come out looking too well and he said, I said, do you want to read it before it comes out? And he was very thoughtful. He said, no. He said, um, you had a hard time and this is your story to tell. Wow. Uh, wow. So uh, I think we all grow over time or some of us do. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of that was in the book too. I mean, I, I not to give too much away, but there is a gentleman who comes back to you and says, you know, were we male chauvinist pigs back back in the day when we made these decisions? So I took I took that to mean a kind of apology or a kind of peace offering. And mm -hmm. again, I think forgiveness is so important to move on, to hold on to bitterness just reduces one's own life. So yeah, mm -hmm. that that wasn't my aim. So when I when I think about the four themes you've mentioned, they they do all come together. I mean, they're all in some ways about integrating, um, you know, different locuses or whatever. Inter, you know, in, even friendship, right, is like integrating two different people and spirituality, you know, Judaism and feminism, integrating family and work, and then kind of forgiveness is probably the the how to, <laughs> just on some <laughs> level, or the required you know oil. Um, what were some of the themes you, you realized didn't belong and how did you kind of, how did you assess that and cut those out? Well, um, I had experienced a good 
a deal of death um, uh, of several of my friends and my sister. And those deaths were much more highlighted in the first draft. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that they needed a book of their own, really. <laughs> mm. Um, and couldn't easily be fit here. They didn't really fit in the friendship theme mm-hmm. uh, because they were much more about loss than they were about friendship. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the women in my book club who is younger and had recently lost her mother said that all of those deaths really took her away from the rest of my story. Mm-hmm. It was kind of, uh, I mean, she didn't say this, but it was kind of the tail wagging the dog because mm-hmm. the discussion of the deaths was so powerful and really didn't fit with anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really loved talking about bringing these two pieces together. The way that you... Uh, kind of set up your relationship with your grandfather and and the wonderful scene that you actually end up not 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 there's one scene but that you use scene a lot with your grandfather um, and then that really locates us in that relationship in a concrete way I think and um, and so that when that moment comes when you can't sit with him anymore it was very sad and disappointing and um, and so I was just curious, you know, memoir is a balance between that sort of summary and that s- and scene. And how was it for you to find the balance and how did you decide what scenes needed to be scenes? Well, I got my first introduction to this topic from Ryan Hardy, who was my teacher, my very first teacher when I took uh, short story writing. Mm-hmm. And Ryan said that Backstory or uh, summarizing is kind of like going underwater. So if you think about scenes as swimming above the water, um, going underwater gives you uh, the backstory. And that um, when you're writing backstory or summary, you have to remember that the swimmer can only hold his or her breath mm-hmm. for a short period of time and that you need to come back to scene as soon as feasible. Mm -hmm. So I tried to use that as my guide. Um, And I think Ellen also, Ellen Sussman was very helpful because her notion of scene was that fiction is the movie camera. And so Angie, you're gonna make movie. (laughs) She said, you have to keep the camera rolling. So now I have these two images. One is I don't want to be underwater too long. The other is I don't want to stop the camera from rolling too much. And so I tried to have a lot of scene. Um, But of course, backstory and summary is so much more efficient than scene. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think um, to write a play or a screenplay where you can't do as much backstory or summary uh, is really challenging because then it has to all be seen. Right, uh, yeah. But I think as I was writing this memoir, I kept saying to myself that if some neurologist had put electrodes on my brain while I was writing a memoir, 
and then, you know, in another uh, day, put electrodes on my brain when I was writing an academic piece, it would be clear that the two sets of writing, even though they're both writing, came from different parts of the brain. Mm. And that, to me, it felt so different mm. in memoir as opposed to be writing academic work. Can you describe that difference? Um, I think that I would use tight and loose. Mm -hmm. So the academic work feels very tight. It feels constrained. It feels like I'm trying to really be efficient in my words and um, linear. Um, and the fiction and memoir feels unconstrained, nonlinear. I can go all over the place, mm. and I don't have to worry about being efficient. I just can tell the story. Mm. Well, it's kind of funny. I also um, think about the vocabulary that's specific to academics in in certain contexts. Like every discipline, discipline has its own jargon, um, and your book is really accessible. You don't go down a path of, you know, jargon, and yet you're able to communicate you know, effectively these ideas about the intersection of your personal experience and how you use research uh, to kind of manage that and to deal with it. Um, did you ever miss having words that were so specific and, you know, I mean, I, do you know what I mean? So quickly. Well, I tried to get the best of both worlds. <laughs> uh, there's one scene where um, I've invited a guest speaker to my class, Carol Jacqueline, who is a psychologist, and the scene um, is is a scene of Carol teaching mm -hmm. and students responding to her and so on. And so I was able to get some specific academic ideas out there through Carol's teaching, but then very quickly I had some student interrupt her mm -hmm. so that it came back to being a conversation between Carol and the student. And I found that to be very effective, to set it in scene, allow uh, somebody to lecture. And I do that with myself later on. There's a scene of me explaining the concept of occupational segregation. And again, it's a dialogue with my students. Mm. Uh, yeah, that idea that dialogue is always doing more than one thing in a scene, it's at play there. Um, now, can you talk about memory and invention in creating scene? I mean, you know, you said I had a student interrupt her, so that's a little bit different than, but a student interrupted her. So, of course, I cannot remember word for word mm -hmm. what Carol said and exactly who interrupted her, although there's one place uh, in the story from that first course I taught on women in work, where I remembered the name of the student who sent me a note, and um, I do remember some specific things like that. Yeah. So I had to create um, a sense of what that lecture was like. And the things that I remember specifically is Carol's style of lecturing, where she would sit on the edge of the desk and um, swing her feet back and forth, um, but and of course, I remember the main messages that Carol was giving. So, so I have created a scene 
uh, using um, what I do remember. Yeah. But I, I do not remember, except in some instances, I remember exactly what the chair of the economics department said to me um, <laughs> in that person because it was so traumatic. Right. Um, but, but I cannot remember everything. Did you create guidelines or rules for yourself around that process of, of illuminating your memory? Well, I want every, I wanted and I want everything in the memoir to honestly have happened. I, I did not create anything. That's why I say now I'd like to write a novel because now I really would like to create something. But so everything that's in there, according to my memory, is something that happened. Mm -hmm. But I really learned very early on that our minds can play tricks on us. And when I was doing the short story writing, I wrote a piece, uh, a short story about one of my aunts, my mother's sister, um, who had been institutionalized for mental illness. Mm. And by that time, my mother had passed away, but her youngest sister, not the one who'd been institutionalized, was still alive. And so I um, sent the short story to my other aunt, and I had a little post-it on it, and I said, don't forget, this is fiction. And two or three days later, she called me and she said, which part is fiction? Mm. I thought, oh dear. <laughs> she said, the part about um, why she was put in this institution. And what I had written in the story was that there had been an attempted rape of her when she was a teenager. And as far as I knew, I'd made that up. And my aunt said, no, that that is in fact what happened. Mm -hmm. And my aunt's theory was <clears throat> that I was a very young girl when I heard this, and I knew I wasn't supposed to have heard it, and so I put it away. Mm -hmm. And if you had asked me up to the time my aunt called, you know, why did she go into a mental institution, I would have said, I don't know. Um, but obviously at some level I did know and then that came out in the fiction. Wow, that's an amazing so, story. Um, I think, you know, in statistics there's a type 1 error and a type 2 error and so I didn't make any type 1 errors. I didn't make anything up. But I can't know <laughs> in fiction that what I made up really is fiction and didn't happen. Wait, so what's a type 2 error? Well, that you um, avoid, let's not go there. I think <laughs> it's going to get too academic. Well, I, will, I will just say, as, an, as a non-economist uh, or, you know, as, as a humanitarian. No. Humanitarian? <laughs> as a, oh my gosh. As Human. somebody who's so, what? Humanist. Humanist. <laughs> but as somebody who's, who's, well, we, we were saying at lunch that we're, we're actually sort of descendants of some of the work that you did, you know, that Angie took a, a women in labor class at UC Santa Cruz and I was a women's studies major, but I'm so interdisciplinary, I never actually got a discipline, which I think has some disadvantages. But I loved the 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 stuff about the, you know the the um, about economics and about the papers and the studies and where sometimes you were going, you know, you had one hypothesis and it didn't work out. 
I mean, I just thought that was all fascinating. Actually, I think I can give you an example of type 1 and type 2 errors that, that will be decipherable. <laughs> Suppose you're thinking about giving a patient a drug, and you want to make sure that the drug doesn't harm the patient. So you're very careful not to make a type 1 error by giving the patient that drug. But if you don't give the patient the drug and it's really efficacious, then you're making another kind of error because now the patient doesn't have the drug because you were too careful. Mm, nice. <laughs> uh, well, that's a life right there. I'm just going to have a shirt that's like, <laughs> you know. Well, right, because I think we in life we, we, we sometimes tend to maybe err on the side of avoiding type one errors, forgetting we might be uh, committing yes. type two errors. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what the slogan yet says, because that's a little complicated, <laughs> but, but it's a really small font across my t-shirt. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure there's actually a great statistical set of symbols for it, too, <laughs> probably. Um, so that, I mean, yeah, so it is super exciting. And as she was mentioning, like, I remember learning all of this stuff and what I was struck by as I was reading your book is how that information wasn't there at the time that you're going to do it. You've got some philosophers, you've got Betty for Dan, you've got, you know, um, Simone, Simone de Beauvoir, de Beauvoir um, <sighs> doing, you know, some philosophical stuff. But you know, by the time I'm in college, we've got studies that look at the relationship of I mean, people looking at housework in a different way. And that's a lot of the work that you do, but it was really struck me that it wasn't there. And um, I think I sort of would have a question if you hadn't been in academia, like what would have been available to you to kind of take on that experience? So hard well, to know. Well, yeah. you know, <clears throat> when I discovered Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the Stanford Library, mm -hmm. I was appalled that I had had all these years of education yeah. and I'd never heard of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So, you know, she belongs in a high school curriculum. Um, and perhaps she's there now. But I don't know. <laughs> the only feminist I knew about was um, about suffrage, you know, mm -hmm. and I had no idea that there were any other issues uh, involved. And I think that's a failure of our social studies curriculum, uh, both for women and for men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we agree that. <laughs> do you have, do you have any thoughts? And they would you? I mean, I had, could not possibly really formulate a better question. But um, do you have any thoughts about sort of the the economics of of writing or of publishing? I mean, you you know, I, we've thought a lot about. For example, the economics of unpaid labor. This is maybe a different form of, of no, largely. Well, I was gonna, yeah, labor. I was going to say writing is a really unpaid labor generally. So the first time I thought about this was when I taught a class with Diane Middlebrook. Diane Middlebrook uh, was a marvelous professor of English literature at Stanford, and she and I taught a class together called Women's Choices. And I taught all the economics from novels and biographies, and that was just a lot of fun. But Diane asked me the question that you just asked. And then when she wrote her biography of Anne Sexton, she put a chapter in there on this issue of what she called human capital. 
Hmm. Um, and how Anne Sexton uh, made a living from writing. And hmm. what was it about um, Anne Sexton's thinking and um, her goals and so on that, that allowed her to do that. So I do think that obviously there are some women and men who can make a living from writing. They're few and far between. Um, but that's probably also true of basketball players, you know? And, <laughs> Maybe more true. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it's, it's hard to sell enough books or Kindle versions or whatever to actually make a living. And, uh, you know, I notice that Ellen Sussman, who is the writer probably I know best, also teaches and uh, increases her income in that way. But it's, it's hard to make a living as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the economic conclusion. <laughs> yeah. How about your own writing habits and practices that have evolved out of academic writing and creative writing? Is there anything, I mean, a, a lot of our listeners are, are writers or people who want to write. Is there anything you can... We also have a fair number of academics, actually. Yeah, that's true. So uh, insights you can offer and inspiration about writing Either. habits. Yeah. Well, the one thing that I would say is that everybody has always told me that I should write every day. And I should devote a certain number of hours every day to writing. And Ellen Sussman was very clear on this, that you should start in the morning and write 2,000 words a day. And if you didn't do that, um, you should give yourself a demerit. Well, um, I've never done that. I didn't do that for academic writing. I didn't do this for this memoir. My writing is uh, very irregular, to say the least. Once I get started... Um, I can't stop. So I'm often up until one or two in the morning um, finishing whatever I'm working on. And my husband knows when I tell him at midnight that I'll be in bed very soon that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And um, then there are days when I'm busy doing other things and I don't write anything. And, you know, the sky doesn't fall in, nothing bad happens. And I think as long as you follow your pattern and write, uh, it doesn't really matter whether you do it in the morning or the afternoon or the evening or every day or not every day, whatever it takes. I heard an interview once with a poet who said that he got up every morning and sat in the same chair. This is at 5 a.m. I, I can't get up at 5 a.m. no matter what, unless I have to catch a plane. Uh, he sits in the same chair every morning and he waits for inspiration to come. But I think maybe that's more poetry than um, writing. Um, when I sit down to write, I know within a half a minute what I want to write. Mm. And if nothing comes, which is really rare, then I go do something else. Mm. Uh, I, I don't sit and wait for the news to arrive. <laughs> and, and you know because it just it pops up. You think, or is it something you've been thinking about in the interim? Well, sometimes I've been thinking about it, and I know Elizabeth, you're interested in dream writing, mm -hmm. and um, I'm very excited at this workshop that we're going to do to to try that. Yeah, because I often realize that when I sit down to write, that what comes was in a dream, mm. not necessarily the night before, but sometime. Wow. Uh, and I also sometimes wake up in the middle of the night 
and realized that I had been dreaming and I have been writing in my dream. Wow. And so, um, you know, as I say, I'm not good at getting up early and writing it all down, but I do trust that it comes through. Mm -hmm. Well, and I wonder if, because you've spent your life teaching and researching and thinking and reading, that you, that you are in between those writing sessions really in a deep process of, you know, what could be called pre-writing or something. Um, so that when you sit down, you know, that's all been incubating and there it is. I think that's right. Um, some people spend their time at traffic lights doing Kegel exercises. <laughs> I spend my time... <laughs> Um, plotting. You know, those are not mutually exclusive activities, just to say. (laughs) But then you're multitasking, and that's a problem, too. But you, sorry, you spend your time plotting, you said? Plotting, you know, getting ideas and thinking about how I'm going to write them and so on. And um, when I was writing my memoir, that happened a lot with my grandmother. Mm. Um, I would wake up in the middle of the night and remember things about my grandmother that I hadn't remembered the previous day, mm-hmm. and then um, I, I would put them in, and um, I, I just so enjoyed all of that. It was just, here's, here we are in the middle of the night, and here's my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was talking to me. Mm. So amazing, the, the moments with your grandparents and, and, and having the conversation about trying to teach your aunts to read. Mm. Yes, um, that was amazing. And that was just, it was so intense, you know, and, and it is amazing to think. And I think for those of us who have been privileged enough not to have a concern around reading, we forget that there are still people who are adults who are not reading and, and what that does to their choices. Yes. You know, and students. One of my doctor students from India did her dissertation on um, illiteracy in India, particularly among women. And so I got to see from her research how absolutely devastating that is. Mm-hmm. And how when a woman in a country like India does know how to read, how the implications are so huge for everyone around her, mm-hmm. her own family, her friends, everybody. It's really the most profound trickle-down effect that you can imagine. Wow. Wow. I will say, my, my kids decided to teach themselves Japanese this summer, and I went to the Berkeley Library, and they, of course, have a Japanese sec- kids section, and you know, which is why I go to the Berkeley Library, even though it's an hour away. And, um, and it was all of these kids' books in Japanese, and I don't have any real relationship to kanji, so I just stood there like at a complete loss. I mean, it was so different, even than Spanish where I can guess and, you know, make mm-hmm. approximations, but here there was nothing. And I really thought about illiteracy in that moment. I have a colleague at the School of Education, Connie Jewell, who once did a seminar for us trying to show us what it's like to learn how to read, mm-hmm. particularly if you're not very good at it. And what she did was she invented a language, you know, various squiggles, and she showed you on the blackboard what each of the squiggles mean. And don't forget, these were all people who already knew how to read something. Right. And um, all of us had the sense of how difficult it was to learn how to read Mm. and how 
this is not something that is hardwired, like learning how to talk or learning how to walk. That to learn how to read takes work. And she also showed us how demotivating it was to run a classroom by saying, okay, who knows what this letter is? And if you're not one of the ones who knows, after four or five tries, you don't even concentrate anymore. Right. And she's saying that that is not a good technique for teaching you. Wow. Amazing. <clears throat> who here wants to raise their hand and admit they're dumb? Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, it is oh, alas, and we want to. We're going to create a new podcast so we can have you back. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is time for our steal this segment. T. S. Eliot said, "Amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal." He wasn't the first to say it, but um, <laughs> so we um, we ask ourselves and each other, "What uh, is there anything you've come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to make your own?" Myra, yes. Um, I admire Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse when she takes the concept of time and makes time a character. Mm. And what she does um, is talk about airs, A-I-R-S, deriving from the wind mm. and the airs come through the house and touch all of the items in the house that are decaying mm. and she describes the decay of these items each being touched by these airs so it's not the wind you can feel that it's a very slight breeze and the airs almost have fingertips that are touching each of these things and you can watch the decay and that is what time is. I, I would love to be able to do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that is fabulous. Great inspiration. How about you, Angie? I'm a little daunted after that example. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I have, again, I'm still in photography and what I, uh, and, and composition, which is what I'm looking at for prep in my film. And the thing that I was looking at most recently, I've been reviewing this movie called uh, Itu Mama Tambien. And um, it's kind of an older movie at this point. Um, but I was looking at color usage following a character. And, um, and I've been really kind of, thinking about composition and simplicity and color. So I think that like what I want to work on and think about this week is um, maybe even going to the extremes is thinking about really basic colors and super simple compositions as I look at setting up my um, storyboards for the film. So great. <laughs> well, I <laughs> I wish I could steal your cogency and clarity of thought, Myra, because but I, I, I have a feeling that that like uh, the kind of parent I wanted to be versus the kind of parent I am, I'm not sure I can, <laughs> can become that. Um, but I'm also reading uh, Bill Clegg's Did You Ever Have a Family? And I'm just a few chapters in, but each chapter is from a different character's point of view. And the 
the kind of central thing that just happened is getting revealed little by little from different sides. And I just love that. And um, I, I think I'm doing that a little bit in my book, not so quite so um, deliberately or multifacetedly as he is. But um, so it's something I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to investigate as I continue to read. Ah, Myra, can prismic, you... Pris, prismatic writing. Prismatic writing or something. Um, Myra, can you tell us where people can find out about upcoming events or find your book or find you online? My website is myrastrover.com, all one word. And um, you can look at the events and you can order the book and um, find out more about me. And I just love this book. I highly yes. recommend it. I think it's really an important and consuming book. Angie, actually, speaking of staying up, Angie actually stayed up reading uh, until one last night or so, which is not something I'm we, normally perkier than this. Yeah. But, uh. <laughs> and we have little kids and dogs, and it's so that that was a, that was definitely an investment. Yes, but it was worth it. I'll say that. So thank you so much for for talking thank with us. 